What's up, everybody? Let me adjust my camera for those of you that are just listening. You won't feel that. Welcome to the newest episode of Nuclear Barbarians. It is me, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny. And I am here once again with the man himself, Mark Heineman. What's up, Mark? How are you doing, Emmett? Super, super glad to be here. Yeah, man. I'm glad to have you here. I'm doing great. If it sounds like I'm recording this in a high school locker room. That's because I'm in. I am. No, I'm in the middle of moving. <laughs> All our furniture it might be more of a gone. gymnasium. We don't know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really, really boomy in here. I'm sorry about that. That should end in the in about a week. So I wanted you back on. I, I put intentionally part one on our first conversation because I was like, I know that I want to continue this conversation with Mark later, I had such a great time. And as we were setting this up, you were just like, oh, I've just been doing a million things in the meantime. I've just been crushing it. Here's like a list of everything I've been doing. And I was like, wow, this guy is busy and learning a lot. And it made me kind of jealous. So I would like to sponge off of everything you've been up to by just asking, what has been up? What have you been doing, man? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's very busy. But in my day job, right? I work for an oil and gas company and I'm in charge of the frack operations and we're not fracking right now. So I'm used to supervising an operation 24-7 mm. um, or being remotely available all the time. And so when, when we're not doing that, I, I get bored and I get bored quickly. And so I have a lot of energy to... Uh, go and work on a bunch of different things. But yeah, I mean, I'd sent you a list of kind of things that I've been working on before, but we can chat a little bit about kind of the blog fired vision that I've, I've got up. I'm working on several articles. I help host a podcast with young professionals in energy, you know, and, and kind of my thesis around what we can do to make make the biggest impact in the world in the least amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the thing that I was really curious about and that I think will be like, we touched on this when we first talked, but I'd like to hear more about it going through. And by the way, people, there'll be a link to the blog or whatever in the show notes and you should check it out. I think I put it there last time and put it there again, go to it, read it, learn, absorb, question. But I was taking um, a look at the fire division of fund, the executive summary and sort of going through it, picking out pieces that I, I liked, but One of the things that I think people would find pretty new, or that I at least haven't heard before, is the idea that ONG folks should get into the nuclear space, So, which I think is exciting because you guys do build the big stuff. So this this is a thesis. So let's let's start with the fire division, right? So that that is is a... uh, currently just a website, right, that I'm using as a platform, similar to what you've done with nuclear barbarians, to, to make public kind of my journey and education in the nuclear space. You know, so for folks that perhaps didn't listen to the previous episode, I've got a long-term view and a life goal of creating energy for America and the world. Um, I've done that for the past decade as a professional, and then even before that, growing up in an oil and gas family in, in the oil and gas sector, right? And I think that um, the nuclear sector stands a chance for major disruption and from the underlying physics deserves to be exploited globally as quickly as possible. So fire diffusion was a catchy name that came to mind and kind of articulates the transition of, you know, if someone's trying to make a career pivot from oil and gas to nuclear, just as we should as a society pivot, you know, the the best energy transition, it kind of meshes all those ideas together. So right now it's a blog, but it's an easy place for me to make public the ideas that I'm synthesizing and provide a space to to talk about things. So 
One of the articles that I posted recently was a fund or an idea for a fund. And this is an idea of me bouncing off several people for um, several months, including my CFO that I'm happy to chat about. But the underlying principle is that you would reinvest dollars from a very successful energy company or a group of energy and then reinvest them in the technology or a system or a development project that stands a chance to benefit you in some tremendous way. And so if you think about the R&D budgets for any multinational oil and gas company, um, they're typically very big, but they're focused on things like, you know, how can we use better steel piping to make sure that we don't have holes in casing, right? And they don't often make the widgets that they buy and then employ. But with the energy transition movement and potential carbon credits, right, I, I see a need and a potential to leverage this movement and really create a, a space and a, and a product for larger companies to invest in. So that was that was the idea behind a fund, meaning you would go out and raise capital, raise funding, and fr from many multinational companies and, and with the objective specifically of redeploying it into a nuclear project. So, you know, there's, since we last spoke, I interviewed Rod Adams for our podcast. And actually, I'll, Love I'll Rod. get to that. Yeah, Rod, Rod's, Rod's great. He's a super, super awesome guy. I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so I've, I've got like a long-term technology play, right? That I'm very bullish and very long on deployment of engines. We'll call them engines, but energy generation sources that can function similar to diesel generators or natural gas generators. But they're, you know, shipping container sized up to, you know, entire power plant size or any size in between, but that's modular and it's easy to deploy. And so how do you get from that fictitious item that doesn't currently exist, but many people are working on it to a real item that is just incredible. I mean, I mean, so diesel engines, this is the idea of the play, but behind us, small modular reactors, micro reactors. I mentioned Rod Adams. He, he's the picture perfect example of somebody that has tried to do this perhaps too early, meaning he had his own SMR company, like you know, one of the first private companies in 1995 to try and go out, build an SMR and make it commercial. So 1995, it's not 2022 or it's 27 years later. That doesn't exist, right? Like he's kind of shelved that project, but he's, he's working on nucleation capital, which is a rolling angel investment fund where he can go out then and select companies that he thinks are winners and help founders forward that, right? And so his, um, We'll call it career path and workflow through that process to me is kind of proof of concept of you know he had a similar idea of go out build an smr build a build this technology and then well th that didn't work but maybe if i can fund fund or finance or contribute to the correct people then it stands a better chance of being successful so yeah i mean so i'm not a business guy at all so like all of this stuff is like new to me and interesting because it seems like we all have to just like try to figure out how to make this happening happen like yeah. you said like yeah. you just gotta gotta get in the scrum that's what the sounds like <laughs> <laughs> no you just gotta you just gotta go for it so yeah 100 yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so while I was listening to you, just just real quick, and this is a, sure. sort of a point of clarification for me. When you were talking about taking the money and then putting it into this fund so that people can try to innovate, build the things they need to disrupt the nuclear space, which is right for it, as you say, I'm imagining something almost like, you know, Bell Labs Mach 2. You know, where that like Bell has this amazing R&D department that has the solid budget of people who are committed to just seeing what happens. Like it is worth the capital expenditure to figure for people to experiment is, am I hearing that correctly? No, I I love the idea of Bell Labs, but that's like the national lab or or that would be a similar focus of the national lab. This would be truly like private venture. Gotcha. Okay. So my background is technical, but also heavy on business. By way of example, like our current company, Franklin Mountain Energy, is trying to transform hundreds of millions of dollars into billions of dollars in a short amount of time. So so how how do you do this, right? Like transforming a little bit of money into a lot of bit of money or any amount of money and and compounding it over time is non-trivial, especially when the projects are big, the capital is very intense, takes a lot of people, there's a lot of government oversight. And I parallel the current project that we're working on to something that would be similar in the the nuclear space. Yeah, that we had the idea for the wells that we're drilling right now in 2017, 2018, right? It was when these were first the inception of, oh, wow, we could go out and drill wells there and be successful. That's when that idea occurred. And from the time that it was like, go out, raise the money, get the government approvals, actually execute on the project effectively. It's five, six years later. And I mean, it's going to be almost a billion dollars invested over that amount of time with a very, very realistic, good return on investment. And, And so I parallel that to how you would approach one of these technology plays or development projects, right? Where the things that we accomplished and are accomplishing um, are leveraging existing technologies, leveraging you know many of the things that people have done and learned from before, but redesigning them in a way that works and having a very as fast as possible return on your investment. Because like the the faster that you can get dollars back out of a project. The more profitable it is, so yeah. yeah, and I think there's there's a ton of hurdles and roadblocks to to get there. And I'm again still very bullish on um, the industry as a whole and and how some of those hurdles and roadblocks might be mm-hmm. averted. And I'm very happy to talk about all, all of those. So yeah, I'd love to hear about the hurdles or what you see the obstacles to this are. But before we get to that, I just wanted to yeah. ask you this, and maybe it's related: sure. is when I assume you've talked to other people in the ONG space about this idea. I mean, I know you've talked to your CFO, but how do they respond? What is their general feeling about nuclear? Are they interested in it in the same way that you are, or are you like a rapper? I've, here? I've, I've, I've got the I've got the world's best anecdote that occurred from the last time that we talked. Now, oh great! So this, 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 <laughs> is a, this is a great time to bring this up. So, in Denver, the Denver Petroleum Club which is like the industry leading organization for, I'll call it the older crowd, older generation, right? I'm probably one of the youngest people at, at 32 that attends regularly, notwithstanding the director that she and I are friends. So, But they hosted a luncheon in partnership with the Economic Club of Colorado. And the speaker at the luncheon was the president of the American Petroleum Institute. And he gave a fantastic speech and discussion on the state, current state of the oil and gas industry, the current state of the world, and the contribution that it's making and and why it's important. And then some, many of the hurdles that exist to, to make 
change for the better for everyone. Really good presentation, in my opinion. You know, he wasn't overly biased. You know, he's, he's the head of the number one lobby group in the world that's lobbying for oil and gas, right? Yeah, right and so yeah. like this guy <laughs> probably has an agenda of some sort, right? But he's like, oh, you people in Colorado, you're like doing re renewables and it's great. We need an all of the above strategy, which we can talk about next. Uh, and how I feel about that. <laughs> I'm very happy to comment at length on that. You know, we, it was opened up to a room of probably 150, 200 people afterwards. And there were two questions that were asked at the end of the discussion. Number one, how do we export more LNG, liquefied natural gas, to which his, his answer was, well, we need more pipelines. And in order to get more pipelines, we need less regulations over them and better public acceptance so that we can build more pipelines to the coast because we need LNG terminals everywhere. And the further you have to transport it, the less economic it is. The only other question that was asked by the audience was, what about nuclear? Wow. That was it, right? And and like, it wasn't asked by me. I was gonna ask it, <laughs> but someone else, someone else went up and asked it, right? And I was like, this is amazing. All right, let's see yeah, what the president of, of API has to say about this. And he's like, you know, nuclear is fantastic. I think it's great. I'm good friends with like the guys over at the NEI, right? Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, and in Washington, right? And he networks with those guys all the time. And he's like, but their regulatory headwinds are even more strenuous than what we have to deal with. And the public acceptance is even more challenging. So, you know, my, I cornered him afterwards and I was like, well, how does oil and gas support them, right? And he's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, we're still oil and gas companies. Like our people know how to get hydrocarbons out of the ground. And so while we'd, we'd like to support them, I don't know, man. He's like, that's like, we're kind of fighting a similar battle, right? So. I think that's you know, the the message is is the best message that I've heard synthesized and articulated in this Epstein's approach of prosperity for humans and the more energy that you use, the more prosperous people are. And so it was, it was an encouraging comment from and and dialogue that you know that he was supportive. He, you know his his communication back was very obvious that you know people are open to it, energy leaders are open to it. I'll provide you with one other anecdote. Oh, and or comment from our discussion that you won't hear probably publicly anywhere else. But he mentioned that commenting on the SEC rules that are coming out about scope three emissions. Man, I mean, right? you know, I you know how I feel about those. It's this is this is this very strange thing. Yeah. Um, right. And and then so there's there's two players in this. The SEC is player number one, and FERC in particular, and then and then BlackRock, right? Larry, mm. Larry Fink. So the 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 API had a board meeting and invited the SEC to come in and talk about these emission rules that were coming out. And the SEC guy representative was like, look guys, we don't want to do this. Like it's literally just the investment community that's telling us that, that you know we need these metrics and we, we we need to track them, right? And the following day, serendipitously, they had Larry Fink from BlackRock in also. And he's like, yeah, no, I think they're terrible. I think they're terrible rules. Like, I don't support them at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think strange. people know that they're kind of uh, deranged. I saw that the Sierra Club had very little luck in trying to persuade another round of major banks into deeper ESG investing. And I think right. like only 10% of the banks were like, sure. Everybody else was like, this is crazy in the yeah. middle of an energy crisis. This is insane to it's do. Very, it's very weird, right? Yeah. And Emmett, I'm curious on your per perception of this also. So, you know, people think that public opinion is pushed in one way. 
And it mm -hmm. seems like there's like a critical mass of public opinion that gets pushed around and people are advocating. And then you know, the taglines, the group think happens, right? Sure. And I've sure. got several anecdotes of, of the group think that it's, it's just really frustrating, right? Because you see 100% renewable, 100, 100%, there's never, it's never 100% clean and nuclear is always excluded for whatever mm -hmm. reason. And you ask mm -hmm. people why, and they're like, well, I don't know. And so also earlier this week, I got a call or I got an email from 10th Mountain Division, which is mm -hmm. a hut division in Colorado, right? These guys maintain huts that people go and ski to in the winter and summer. And they sent out an email this week that was like, we need, we need to solve climate change. So we're going to put more solar panels on our huts. You know? yeah. I'm like, that's cute, but you guys have like a platform. <laughs> and so like, I wrote back a very short email that was like, you guys are making it, you're missing a huge opportunity. Like your biggest opportunity is to message and use your platform and advocate for nuclear power. If you're really trying to solve climate change. About two hours after I sent the email, the head of the organization called me directly and was like, hey, what, what are you talking about? Like, uh, I don't get it. We're not energy experts. Like, you know, but we're advocating for like the whole climate change. I was like, well, let me go, go over a couple of basics with you and send you some YouTube videos to, to watch and yeah, educate totally, yourself totally. a little bit about. But like, it's that kind of advocacy that I think will make a big difference in driving change and like at every organizational level or every size of organization. So that's one example of, you know, trying to educate a group that I'm directly involved with and can have an influence on. Sure, sure. Yeah. And so my, my curiosity or my challenge to you then is how do we approach all of the environmental groups that are continuously seemingly against nuclear with a similar message and a similar advocacy to change their tune and modify their rhetoric? And how do, we, so, how do we challenge them? I think some of those groups can't be one. So I'm going to say that out the gate. I think the legacy major environmental orgs can't really be won over. And that's because, I mean, maybe if this older generation that really steward it dies off, dies. there might be a shot. Yeah, yeah. there's a great like, way to change policy. It's like, yeah, people, <laughs> people die. Yeah. But I, I mean, but even then, like, you know, people, I think that that can create a faith in an idea of the march of history that is beyond human agency. And it is also does it like to ignore inconvenient truths like path dependency. So I think some of those groups can't be one. Some of the newer ones, maybe Sunrise Movement can. I've seen some people, young people, it's mostly young people over there, very confused about the premature closure of Indian Point. Like, it makes really, no sense. Right, exactly. So, and I do think that in this case, there is hope for like younger up and coming groups, the uh, American Conservative Conservation, whatever the hell it's called, run by a Benji Backer. I have some very strong opinions about some of the things they do and say, but they tend to be pro-nuclear and very young. So I think some of it's there. I totally agree with you that I think there needs to be that sort of like independent advocacy of this is just a good thing that we need right. that you're sort of talking about that needs well, to and be I mean, there. So I, I, I'm going to push back because I've been, I've been pushing back, right? So the day that the nominee came out for the regulatory commissioner, I'm blanking on his name right now. Oh, for the NRC? Um, yeah, for the NRC, that was yeah, yeah. NRDC alum. I emailed you and I was like, this is a disaster. And I sent you an email, an example that I sent to NRDC's media team. And sure. it was like, hey, we want to interview you guys for our podcast. It's Young Professionals in Energy, which like our platform for YPE is broad enough that we can include everyone and we try and not be antagonistic polarizing. Totally. Even yeah, though totally. I have a very specific agenda yeah, sure. of changing the world as I as I see best fit, right? Like I want to be able to talk to everyone. And so I emailed these guys and I've yeah, 
I don't expect that I'll get a response, but I do think it's important to ask the question explicitly of, you know, why, if you guys are anti or are, you know, trying to solve climate change, you're not incorporating technology that stands the best chance to do it. And just get people on record to say why, right? Make people voice their totally. opinion. And, and I think if enough people write in that have a voice and have a platform or are ind individuals and just asking that explicit question, I do truly think it'll make a difference. And I, I mean, it's as simple as like anytime that one of your listeners or anyone else comes across, you know, a website, inevitably they have a contact us form. If they say 100% renewable to solve climate change, just email them, do contact us and say, sure. why not include nuclear? Sure. And I'm not saying people, um, shouldn't do that. And I think it's important to ask why. I've just finished a serious round of research into the major orgs. And a lot of their stuff seems to be really about, they're hostile to nuclear mostly because of how energy dense it is. So there's almost like a fundamental theological disagreement about like, why yeah, energy like, is important. I, I don't understand this. It feels like that that's the solution. They're mad at the right, solution. Right. But their, their solution <laughs> is that we need less growth. And that that yeah. is the problem. That's the strain. It's going to be too on, good. On Earth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> too good for humans. I mean, there is Paul Ehrlich and Amory Lovins are on record basically saying, and, uh, you know, so I think that that's part of it. But look, like there's this other thing too that I think ONG and nuclear really share. And it is how they talk about themselves to the public. Yeah. And, you know, I was seeing some guys, because now I follow ONG Twitter, talking about their frustration with the industry where they're like, I wish the big giants would like let some of their employees create content right. so that the public would know like what the air scrubbers do, like why it's important that we have this, like how right. it can be improved to mitigate certain environmental effects and like how the trade-offs work so that it puts human face on it. You know, I follow lots of ONG social media, especially on Instagram, and most of it's outside of America from what yeah. I have found. Like you get guys that are working the frack pad that make like meme accounts for each other. You know, they're about working yeah. in the oil field. And some of those are hysterical, but they aren't the, you know, but they aren't the same thing as what that is. And nuclear has done, and I think it's because it was mostly stewarded by mostly just engineers and especially engineers in the utilities and the major yeah. manufacturers, Westinghouse and GE, who basically since the 1880s, just like really felt like a class apart who was making I'll, I'll decisions be, from be, the top I'll be down. crass about it. I'll be crass, but they've done a dog shit job. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. they were just kind of pissed off that any little people were in their way in the seventies. And so the populist sort of reaction of the green movement was an authentic American response right. to what felt like a certain type of economic tyranny. Now I think that the actual energy stuff within that is misguided, but I understand the political impulse. So I think both realms could benefit from advocacy of their own. And I think that's not the be all end all, but that's a powerful step forward because if these, like, especially for nuclear, if the industry isn't gonna take pride in itself, it becomes that much harder for people outside of it to stand up yeah. for it and come to love it. Right, like it has to love itself Absolutely. first, <laughs> like, <laughs> like any good relationship, right? You yeah, can't exactly. Be loved by others, if you don't love yourself, yeah. Exactly. So that's sort of my answer to that. Yeah, I, I like. No, that's really helpful. Yeah, and I think it's helpful for people to hear. Right, we're actually doing that internally. All right, 
I've pitched at least, this is funny, I, I, sorry, distraction in the office. I've pitched at least internally that we do a, a promo video for our company, right? And to demonstrate what we've done as a project and as a team to do just that, right? Highlight mm-hmm. the humans that are behind what we're doing and have make it available internally to our board, to our investors to be proud of it and to really get, get behind it, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I would love to see more content like that. And so I think, okay, that is clearly one of the, the obstacles that we're both facing. What, what are some of the other ones that you see as obstacles for this fund? Or what are some challenges uh, that you're going to need to take on? So you mentioned last time when we chatted, what are we going to do about the NRC? And I, I've got, so I, I like to be educated and informed and go to the source of truth for rules and regulations in particular. Meaning like when there's a requirement that we have to meet in the oil and gas space, right? Like we've got a regulatory team, we've got attorneys in-house, we've got legal counsel, we have VP of legal, right? That is on our executive team. And we actually go out, of course, and read these rules. Anytime that someone's talking or complaining about a regulatory body, I like to ask, well, have you actually like read the rules? So like one of the things that I'm working on now is actually going through and reading the CFRs, you know, Title 10, the parts 50 through 52 that highlight and focus on new reactors, new development, right? And mm-hmm. everyone talks about them being specific to light water reactors and very cumbersome. Mm-hmm. And that's a hundred percent true, right? And in my own work to digest them, it's like laughable how hard it is to comply with these rules (laughs) right because there's just like so many of them you know and and there's so many regulations and like i mean it's an attorney's wet dream that they can like be spend an entire career digesting these things and then anytime that it references a different regulation you know you got to go and comply with that too whether it be NEPA or OSHA or any other Mm -hmm. regulatory body and so that's that's very challenging and it stifles innovation, which is entirely problematic, which is why they're coming out with part 53, right? That is the, the new rule to try and regulate SMRs and smaller reactors. Gotcha. And so I, I spoke with Jeff Merrifield about this, and we're going to have him on the White Bee podcast to discuss it. But that's uh, a new set of regulations that hopefully is going mm. to be designed to address the smaller reactors specifically. I'm concerned it's going to be just as cumbersome. Yeah, that was going to be my first, yeah, <laughs> my yeah. first so worry. The, the timing for that, though, I'm is I'm optimistic about. I spoke to Jeff a couple weeks ago, and you know he mentioned that the original timing was 2027 for the, for them for the uh, rules to be done and released, and the accelerated timing he thinks they'll be done by 2025, which would be phenomenal, right? Like if we at least know what the rules are that we're playing by, then we can actually innovate and totally. do do great things, right? Or can at least start working projects and you know capital chases opportunities that exist in regimes with stability and certainty because like these are long cycle time projects and like one of my favorite quotes my dad said all the time when i was growing up was like you know this this game would be easy if they weren't changing the rules all the time you know like yeah no absolutely so i think i think having stability in the nrc is important i think scaling back or modifying many of the rules is important but i think the predecessor for those things to happen is a change in public perception and change in the requirements that the NRC has, mm. right? And so it's like, if you, if you ask, well, why are the rules stringent the NRC, right? And it's like, well, they think radiation is dangerous and it is dangerous above certain levels, right? It's very obvious. All of the data from the Hiroshima, Hiroshima stuff like demonstrates that, right? But then like, mm-hmm. 
you know, all the nuclear bros or our advocacy community then says, well, below a threshold level, it really doesn't matter, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a practical limit that it, it just doesn't matter. Um, yeah, the body repairs. Yeah, the body repairs. And so, and there's there's a great study on the mechanisms of how low, low doses could be a problem. The UN, United Nations Scientific Committee on, on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, UNSERA, right, put mm-hmm. together. And I've got one of my doctor friends looking into it, and hopefully I can convince him to write a blog post about it that we'll post yeah. on the fire deficient, right? But about, you know, what is the impact of this paper? What What's the true background of LNT? You know, does it really matter, like from a cost benefit? Because anyone that's engrossed in the industry just says like, no, it doesn't. But like mm-hmm. you as an author, podcaster, and me as an engineer and like businessman, like people may not trust us as authorities on it, right? Yeah, but they, totally. may, they might trust a doctor review. And so like having an independent review available and accessible that you can then present to people and say like, well, here's, here's like the research that we've done. And here's the um, authoritative committee that, you know, backs it. And this is why we think it's good or not. And then why we agree with this approach or not. And then gets back to the advocacy work with any of the environmental groups that are campaigning against. So that's, that's a long-winded way of saying like NRC is a problem because the rules are stringent. The rules yeah. are stringent because people don't like radiation. People don't like radiation because they think it's hurtful, even at super low levels even though there's not a lot of great justification for that. So address that and then go talk to everyone that you can and have a whole campaign of changing their mind. Yeah, I think, you know, this is something that I've thought about a lot in my conversations with Chris Kiefer over at Decouple. He's a medical doctor. Yeah, he's fantastic. And one of the things that I've really come to appreciate from, I mean, A, just listening to his podcast, but also talking to him a lot is that, I really think that there needs to be a relationship with the medical community about Hmm. radiation because of the importance of medical isotopes and because of, you know, cancer treatments and things like that. I think most people don't even, right. I don't think most people don't even know that like chemo (laughs) involves like radiation, you know, and that's fine. You know, like it's hard to get good information about energy in our society and how certain things work. I think that's just true. It's a huge gap in our education system and there's a huge gap in our public discourse. So I don't blame anyone for not knowing that. I didn't know that. I completely understand, you know? And I think that there's a huge opportunity to work with the medical community on how to talk about radiation, how to talk about cancer rates and things like this. The things that people are scared of because one of the major problems that I see our society falling into is sort of a cult of safetyism. Uh, it's, yeah, that's and problematic. Yeah, exactly. Because I don't think the trade-offs are very good for that. I think that's actually very injurious, not just industrially, economically, or politically, but also psychologically. And so I think that more information with a certain perspective, a certain style to it could help bring greater understanding of the realities of these things and hopefully some more courage and intrepidness with it, which our society is spoiling for right now. I love that. Well, if you and Kiefer uh, figure that, figure out how to do that. Effectively, yeah. If we crack that I'll, code, I'll, I will, you will I'll, be my first call. <laughs> I will evangelize it broadly. So yeah. As, as broadly as I can. Yeah. So 
Let me ask you this question, because I've thought about this a lot. Like as I've gotten into writing about these things regularly for Grid Brief, I, I've had to basically- Which is fantastic, face. by the way. You do a great job. I oh, thank you. compliment you enough. I read it every day. Like, I don't you. read every newsletter every day. And I, yours, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is awesome work. I catch thank some of your typos, but I'm like, they're, they're very small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I wish I caught more of those as well. I've actually started making <laughs> Mo's a better copy editor than me, so I make her read it before we go to bed now. Nice. Um, I like that. <laughs> uh, I do the same with my girlfriend. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, as I've had to give myself a crash course and like all of this stuff, it's helped me learn a little bit more about how the business of things work. Yeah. And when we're talking about rule ambiguity, it, if there's rule ambiguity, it's hard to get capital for a project because it's no one no one knows what they're yeah. investing in. Right? Is that another obstacle you see for the idea of the fund right now? Like, it's like we need to get the rules oh, in place in order to yeah. get people convinced that this is well, even so, worth. Or so just tell me is, about that. Yeah. So I mean, Nelson mentioned this on his most recent Robert Price podcast when they, when mm -hmm. they chatted. The U.S. is such a scary place to invest more dollars right now that some of the best and smartest minds are going elsewhere to do it. And they've just resolved to just go and do it somewhere else in the world, right? Which I is mean, like, I've heard Brett Kugelman say that. Yeah. You know, I've heard him yeah. be like, look, I don't care about American nuclear anymore. It's right. a pain in my ass. <laughs> like That's, I want to do other yeah, stuff. He's like, this doesn't make sense, which is like, yeah. just so sad. You know, it's yeah, just so totally. like bafflingly sad because America was the place of innovation. Like you can go out wild west, do, do whatever you want, you know? Yeah. And like, okay, there's we need regulations in a lot of ways because otherwise like slave trade and like you know navajo nation yeah. actually from getting having lots of radiation damages and osha violations and like okay some re right. regulations are good you know? but like you also need some flexibility like and you need you need an ability to experiment and try and fail because mm -hmm. like you'll never get better uh, unless you fail so like i i wish i could be more optimistic that the rules would change faster for the benefit of the world and the US in particular. Um, but like, it's not the easiest place to function right now as an entrepreneur. And so I even have like a secondary goal of, you know, traveling the world, both as a uh, private personal trip, but then a business development opportunity to go and visit everywhere else that I want or could think mm -hmm. about, you know, generating a business and deploying these dollars to invest um, somewhere that like the sandbox is more accessible. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a long-winded way of saying there could be better opportunities internationally for some mm -hmm. of these innovations to take place. Yeah, I think that's tough. You know, here's, here's something else that I've been thinking about. I saw an article, I just sort of skimmed it, but it was very interesting. And it was about the French shoe industry. And they were like, we want to reshore some of this from Vietnam. After COVID, they were like, <laughs> we've got some shoe problems. We'd like to have some more domestic yeah. industry. We would like this back. And so they're working on it. And what they realize is that they've lost all the human capital. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's a whole other element here. These things don't hang around forever. They can wither on the vine. I couldn't agree more. I've got a story or a story that comes to mind for human capital as an example. Yeah, please. So when, when we build facilities, so these are the processing facilities. I, I can't I remember, have I talked about this with you already or not? But uh -huh. yeah, so when we when we build processing facilities for oil and gas, once it comes out of the ground, you got to do something with it, right? And some people think like, oh, well, just like it's on the surface and then then what, right? Turns out there's a lot of what that happens after it gets out of the ground. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and much of it can be very complex. And it's a lot of really incredible machinery and piping systems that are specifically designed to do just incredible things, right? But they're very complex systems. There's not like a standard design or pamphlet for how to build these processing facilities, right? And they're, they're basically like little mini chemical separation plants, right? They're like their whole function is to separate the oil, water, and gas and then get them into a form that you can put them in three separate pipes and pipe them away so that you can use them elsewhere, except the water. We pump the water back into the ground and dispose of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the variability in how these facilities are built, right? This is a problem that anyone that drills an oil and gas well has to solve. They have to do something with the oil mm-hmm. and gas once it, once it comes out of the ground. And there are thousands, there may be probably tens, hundreds, thousands of different examples of how to build a production facility to manage this process. And the companies that do it best are the companies that have been doing it for the past decade, 20 years, and yeah. have a set of have a set of rules, have learned what works, what doesn't work, and often are some of the smallest teams. I like to tout our team. We've got um, an incredible facilities engineer that it's been his entire career. He's, he's on the other side of the wall, not this wall, but that wall. You know, working right now to figure out how, how can we invent less gas and capture more of it to make more money. But his, you know, he's got 15 years of experience building this stuff and has built these facilities all over um, the country, right? I have also built similar facilities. I understand a lot of them, but I've only got like a year or two of building them. You don't want me designing facilities when you can have him designing facilities, right? We hired him because they're <laughs> yeah. like, Mark, you're okay with this, but uh, we, we should really have this guy do it instead. <laughs> and I was like, you're right. And then, and now we've got like these gold-plated incredible facilities, right? Yeah. Without him and without that experience, like we, we wouldn't have had the same product. And literally across the section line from us is a competing oil and gas company hmm. that again, is solving the exact same problem. You know, their wells look, produce approximately the exact same amount as ours and their facilities are so different. Like they're less efficient. They have more tanks, more storage tanks. They have more piping. Their chemical processing and treatment to get poisonous gas out is more expensive. It's not Uh, as efficient as ours. They're not connected to pipeline and they're, yeah, they've just got a, a bunch of problems that you know they're getting this hard now but like they didn't have the human capital and the expertise to do it right. effectively right? that's what made the which, difference that's it's a hundred percent right the, the experience made the difference which i hate because i'm young and i i want to say that I get yeah 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 and yeah the, the ex, having experience matters matters and it's like okay well, yes but if you if you lose those people right like mm-hmm. westinghouse losing them right? like the vogel project going over budget it's it's difficult if not impossible to get them back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is so much that goes into these things. I think this is also a function. I'm glad that you brought up just being a young gun because I've really thought about this too. I've thought about my twenties, right? This is a little bit of personal reflection on like how I've come to change my mind on some of these things. And it was part of learning about nuclear and energy systems. And then part like, getting married and then part just like seeing people die young in my twenties, you know, and realizing like, you know, first of all, things can just go away that you don't have a lot of control over that, that you have very little control over things in this world actually. And that the world does not turn on a dime. Like that is not how commitments work. That is not how people forecast their future. 
that is not how society can function if everything is just quicksilver change all of the time. You know, that doesn't mean that all change is bad, far from it, but that we need metrics, we need yardsticks, and we need discipline. And all of those are long-term things. Yep. 100%. You know, and if I could go back to tell my younger self something, it would be that, you know, like the mistakes I made then are important and I'm glad I made them, but taking the long view and understanding that patience is also part of appreciating human capital because you won't take it for granted. I, I will say, I'll add on to that. Um, we, we also have to be focused on the right things. Yes. Like dis- <laughs> yeah. Discipline for discipline's sake is only so valuable. That's true. Um, as, as a musician, there's a saying that um, practice makes permanent, perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and I've got a sad story of where this was true in my life, where I wanted to be a basketball star growing up. Mm-hmm. And I dragged my dad to the gym to practice shooting free throws and shooting hoops mm-hmm. like every morning at 5 a.m. For, for years. Mm-hmm. And like practiced on my own and like got really good at shooting under a controlled environment, dribbling under a controlled environment. And, but like never really had the confidence to go out and, and like play the game at full speed. And so when mm-hmm. I would, you know, like still played varsity senior year, but like was not a good player. You yeah. Know? And like I'd shot tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of three pointers and wanted to be an all-star state champion basketball player. And the, my senior year, I shot three three-pointers in games and I missed every single one. Yep. And like the problem was so I wasn't practicing the game at full speed at or in the environment that I needed to play it to truly be effective, right? Mm-hmm. And so pivot that to your career. You know, think about companies that are trying to compete. Think about building any technology. Yeah. Like, it's the difference between the PowerPoint reactor and the submarine. Like you, we have to play at full speed. And I, I think this is like a message that the NRC needs to hear and like yeah. needs to understand yeah. is if we want the U S to be successful and we have to like empower the people that are trying to make it happen, mm-hmm. the doers that are trying to make it happen. I'll give you a, a quote that, again, Mark Nelson said that I, I really resonated mm-hmm. with. Um, that there's a power all of its own of just doing things. And it tends to find and create leaders who can do other things. And so he's for whatever projects they feel are necessary because it'll make an environment where the doers get promoted because mm-hmm. they execute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I was thinking about this because I've started um, in my spare time, I've been doing like competitive arm wrestling. And that's fantastic. I watched a lot your of, elbow. yeah, <laughs> well, you know, and I was watching a video with one of the best guys in the world whose best friend is also uh, a major competitor, Matt Mask. He's an Alberta oil field guy. He's still a roughneck after all these years, which, which he loved to see. And Devin was saying, I was listening to him. I was watching a seminar. Somebody had uploaded of him and he said, the most important strength is the strength you win through combat. He was like, the gym stuff is important. Yeah. But he's like, all of the actual strength will come from the table. He's like, everything else is just support, you know? And so that's how I think about these things. Like we can have the fanciest, coolest new reactor on paper, 
but if it's not the reactor being built, it's less valuable. <laughs> you know, like that's the, and I think um, a brass tacks approach is something that we need to recommit ourselves to naturally, nationally. I really yeah. do. Like, I, I think that 100%. that's, so maybe on that, that note, which I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to all of our conversations in the future. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, me too. So everybody, we're going to end it on that, I think, inspiring note, I hope. It was inspiring for me. And (laughs) I want you to check out Mark's stuff. That'll be in the show notes. He's reachable. He's one of the most reachable guys I've ever met. So I'll put some of his info for that in there too. Thank you so much, man. Unless unless you're trying to unless you're trying to sell me drill bits, then it's a little bit. Yeah, don't do that. So, <laughs> I mean, I'll still Don't. talk to you, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave one more plug. Like, Please do. And it yeah. was correct. I'm, I'm very easy to reach and I'm actively trying to connect with the people that if want to make this happen, meaning mm-hmm. like you're inspired by this discussion. If you think that there's a chance or if you agree with our thesis of what needs to be done mm-hmm. and you want to contribute, then reach out. Yeah, I'm going to spend at least the next year fracking an, an extra 50 wells, right? For the current project that's been in the works for the past decade for me, right? This is a very yeah. important part of my career. But after that, it's like the, that's the steps that I'm taking now and that anyone is taking today will pay dividends and are, are the, will, will influence where your career goes next, right? So open invitation to people that are interested in partnering with me to make these things happen, reach out, let's chat. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, stay radiant. We will see you here next time.